0: Welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ricardo Gonzalez from Houston Methodist Hospital, talking about male LUTs and BPH core curriculum.
1: Good morning, y'all. Sorry for the slight delay uh, in starting, but I'm glad you're tuning in to learn more about uh, Lutz and BPH uh, as part of the urology core curriculum. Uh, first, I'd like to thank uh, the team at UCSF, including the residents, Michelle and Kirstie as well, in their organization and planning during this, uh, during this tumultuous time uh, where we're having to reinvent ourselves as uh, urologists, educators, uh, students, residents. Uh, so, so, this is a fantastic platform uh, to to bring you guys up to speed and uh, keep up with your uh, me- uh, with your medical education. Um, so so very happy that you can participate, and so grateful for for UCSF for the invitation and in allowing us to do this. Uh, my name is Ricardo Gonzalez. I'm a I'm an associate professor of urology at Texas A&M and Houston Methodist here in Houston, Texas. I'm the program director for for the Urology Fellowship in Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery, which is FPMRS, uh, but today we're talking about male LUTs and the BPH core curriculum, uh, and th- this will be basic. At the end, we'll have some opportunity uh, to have your questions answered. In terms of disclosures, some people go through these slides quickly, uh, I do not have disclosures that are relevant to the things that we're speaking about today. so not uh, in regards to diagnostics nor medical therapeutics of BPH, but I listed my disclosures with device and surgical treatments for BPH in case issues come up or questions come up uh, about these technologies during the uh, question and answer session. I also think it's important uh, to, to understand that we need to continue to be involved with industry in development Of new technologies. They need input from busy practicing urologists and academic urologists. These things are not developed in a vacuum and and expertise needs to be derived from, um, uh, you know, invention is a mother of necessity and we should help guide that. So my relationships with most of these companies are on their advisory boards and as a consultant, as an investigator for many Boston Scientific, on Bio, Meditate, and Tumed, But uh, we will keep on going here. And then in terms of learning objectives, um, broad overview is we're talking about the basics. What are the ICS definitions so that we're all speaking the same language? We talk about anatomy, physiology, epidemiology, pathophysiology, and then how do we evaluate the, the male patient with LUTs? We'll go through the AUA and EAU guidelines briefly and then talk about the non-invasive management options, so behavioral modification and medical therapy, during which we will have a poll. In terms of what is the alphabet soup we used for, that we use for male LUTs and BPH, uh, it's quite busy. Uh, when we're talking about symptoms and quality of life, we really need to uh, talk about LUTs, lower urinary tract symptoms, It is not a diagnosis, urinary frequency is not a diagnosis, it is a symptom that can be part of a complex that helps us reach the diagnosis. And there's a lot of overlap between these these terms. Uh, Benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH, is what we use most commonly, but truly it's a histological diagnosis. Um, If you do not have a, a histologic diagnosis and you feel the prostate is enlarged on exam, it should be BPE. Benign prostate enlargement. Bladder outlet obstruction is a urodynamic is a term, but it's very helpful, but it is absolutely not specific to the prostate. Uh, so that's a good term to use. And then the most specific term for a prostate that's enlarged causing bladder outlet obstruction is BPO, which is benign prostatic obstruction. This Venn diagram is also helpful uh, because you can see um, you can see BPH here as histologic BPH uh, that might not result in enlargement. You know, if, 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 uh, if you have uh, enlargement and histologic change, then you start having BPO, BPE. When you combine it with either urodynamic obstruction or symptoms, uh, but they do not all overlap. Uh, so use the right terms, especially in medical literature and when you guys are writing reviews or papers, uh, it's useful to use the correct terminology. Uh, So you can either say uh, LUTs secondary to BPH would be a good way to to refer to what we traditionally say as BPH. In terms of anatomy and physiology, let's talk about the prostate structure and function. I tell the patients the prostate is a uh, walnut-shaped gland whose purpose it is to make the uh, fluid that transports your sperm, so it's a reproductive gland. It starts growing at puberty, and it grows until we die as men, and genetics play a role in that. Uh, as well as our environment and our diet. In a normal prostate that's not enlarged, 30% of the gland is glandular tissue, and 70% is a stroma or fibromuscular tissue. The way I explain that to patients is I tell them your prostate is made up of two components. There's glandular components that make the secretion, so imagine those as sponges, that are sitting in a nest of smooth muscle. And when you ejaculate, the smooth muscle has to squeeze and squeeze out the secretions into the prostatic urethra to, to, to move sperm and to ejaculate. So that's how it works. So you can have uh, problems in the glandular component, but also in the uh, smooth muscle and stromal component. Prostatic fluid in a normal prostate will account for about 15% of the ejaculate volume. Uh, the rest is seminal fluid, uh, uh, from seminal vesicles and a small amount of sperm. Uh, the prostate anatomy, even though it just looks like one kind of mushy ball, uh, is it has zones. And so the transition zone, when we talk about BPH, is usually the area that we're talking about histologically. So it is, uh, it's, it's two equal parts of glandular tissue on each side of the mid-prostate, uh, but only about 10 percent. Uh, I'm sorry only about 5% of the of the glandular tissue in the prostate is located in this, this zone in a normal prostate the majority of the glandular tissue is in the peripheral zone so 70% of glandular tissue is located in the peripheral zone and that is where the majority of prostate cancers are uh, are identified because That's where the glandular tissue is, and prostatic adenocarcinoma arises from that glandular tissue. That's also why digital rectal examination, DRE, is here to stay. Granted, outside of this COVID era, but where we can do rectal exams, uh, uh, because if there's gonna be a mass, we should be able to palpate it uh, there. which is in the minority of patients we're diagnosing with prostate cancer, but it's still an important part of the examination. In terms of lobar classification, this is, if you guys already uh, have, have done a lot of TURP procedures or surgical procedures for BPH, this might not make a lot of sense because we're used to thinking right lobe, left lobe, and a middle lobe uh, surgically, but uh, the lobes are posterior, um, which is back here, which is uh, where the median lobe and median bar will arise from. And then you have uh, the, the lateral lobes here. Uh, you have an anterior lobe, which surgically I don't like to think of as a lobe, um, but that's outside of this, the scope of this uh, conversation, but there is an anterior lobe. And what I want you to notice is that the ejaculatory duct structures run kind of posterior laterally and, and, and come together uh, where the primary ejaculatory ducts are uh, just proximal to the virumontanum. So keep this in mind when you think of ejaculatory sparing procedures, like the mis procedures we do in the office, like the prostatic urethral lift procedure or resume procedure in that we wanna be targeted with where we're putting our needles. So we wanna aim over here, And it's also relevant when we're doing ejaculatory duct sparing modifications to transurethral procedures uh, like those that we do with laser. In terms of uh, the the secretion it makes, uh, the, the prostatic secretion is acidic with a pH of about six. It has zinc, citrate, polyamines, proteolytic enzymes which you guys have heard of which is like PSA and PAP. Most of that does go into the lumen of, of the prostatic gland, Some gets into the bloodstream. So we know that PSA uh, goes up not only in cancer, but it's a proxy for volume. So BPH, the more prostate you have, the more uh, PSA you have circulating. I love to quiz my residents all the time with, if, if you know nothing about a patient uh, and, and, the, and the PSA is 1.5, approximately how big is a prostate? In my mind, I like to think of, Uh, a a PSA of 1.5 corresponding with a prostate volume of 30 to 35 mLs, just as a thumbnail. So if you do a rectal exam and a patient has a prostate that feels small and has a PSA of 6, that would be abnormal and not likely to be BPH. In terms of the vasculature to the prostate, uh, if you're thinking, well, the main blood supply comes from the uh, prostatic artery, you would be correct that that would be Uh, one of the branches, but think upstream. Most of them are branches uh, of of the uh, anterior trunk of the internal iliac artery, Uh, and those branches include the inferior vesicle artery, uh, which will provide blood supply to the proximal two-thirds of the prostate, and then you will have uh, the internal pudendal supplying what's the external sphincter and apex of the prostate. Surgically, what that means is you should operate when you're doing a transurethral procedure, do the proximal two-thirds of the prostate. I always leave the apex for the end because it's a different uh, blood supply. There could be a watershed area there, and also I don't want to coagulate a lot around the sphincter. If there's apical bleeding, you can often stop that with a catheter. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, for those of you who are at centers that are doing prostatic arterial embolization, this is relevant because there's a lot of variability to the blood supply. Uh, the cluster of arteries that give the, the blood to the prostate can be, the acronym is PROVISO, P-R-O-V-I-S-O, uh, and the technique used to embolize is the perfected technique, which is out of University of Sao Paulo, um, Dr. Carnavale, where you do a proximal embolization first, and then you drive through that and do a distal embolization of as many of the uh, arterial branches to the prostate that you can. In terms of epidemiology and pathophysiology, um, LUTs are extremely common. If you just look at the decade of men in their 70s, 50% of them are gonna have BPH, but if you widen the window and look at men who are between 45 and 80, 90% will have some element of lower urinary tract symptoms. And then in terms of the number in the U.S., with clinical BPH would be prostate enlargement with LUTs. It's about 6.2 million. So you have to look at who's likely to progress and who's likely to have symptoms. Well, some predictors include age, prostate volume, and PSA. We know that as as we age, whether we are men or women, uh, LUTs increase, uh, but so does BPH, uh, but not all of the symptoms of LUTs are directly attributable to the prostate enlargement because as women age, they have an increase in LUTs and they don't have prostates, right? So, but age is an independent predictor of LUTs prevalence and severity as we, uh, you know, over time. Uh, Hormones, we know that there's a direct relationship to the uh, pathophysiology of prostate growth. When we talk about testosterone and hormones, however there's a lack of data to find uh the direct relationship we don't know whether hypogonadism or correction of hypogonadism uh directly long term would impact uh LUTs with aging uh there are some effects on psa that have been described um and and uh but it's it's beyond the scope of this conversation but uh Hormones do play a role. Inflammation clearly plays a role. Men who have elevated PSAs, uh, who have a prostate biopsy and don't have cancer, you will likely either have NIH class 4 prostatitis, so inflammation or BPH and or both. Enlargement, histological BPH, and inflammation. And then uh, genetics and race play a role uh, independent of environment. So uh, whereas there's some... um, patterns we can see, and there's racial and ethnic uh, disparities in LUTs with aging that have been described. We know environment is such an important uh, factor. You look at Japanese men and you look at the incidence of BPH with LUTs, um, it's one thing, but you move uh, a Japanese man to North America, like to Hawaii, or, uh, or the US and you give them the North American lifestyle and LUTs will increase and prostate volume will increase, probably because of the meat and dairy intake or whatever it is that we have um, here in North America. Um, and then, so the pathophysiology of growth can happen in different ways, but let's focus on the, on the glandular component where testosterone is metabolized by 5-alpha reductase to DHT, which is five times more potent in the prostate to, to stimulate growth. And then that's going to result in protein production and cell growth. Uh, and that hopefully is going to be uh, a balanced cellular uh, process. Uh, however, some of the theories for BPH is that you can have increased activity of the 5 alpha reductase so that you have more cell growth and or you have a decrease in apoptosis of that growth so that you result with more more bulk there to the prostate causing benign prostatic enlargement. In terms of the more stromal components and the fibromuscular uh, component, we're talking more about autonomic system innervation of the prostate and in the parasympathetic role would be to stimulate glandular production of the prostatic fluid and then the sympathetic or adrenergic stimulator results in smooth muscle contraction. Earlier I talked about a smooth muscle nest that has to squeeze the sponge of the juice. So that's that that alpha-1 adrenergic uh, activity is what helps propulse uh, fluid into the ejaculatory ducts. So maybe increase alpha-1a receptor activity can promote uh, uh, male LUTs due to BPH or be the primary problem, like in the case of primary bladder neck obstruction, <coughs> PBNO. So, think another way to look at this is are we talking about a static component or a dynamic component? Because that might help you direct your medical therapy when we get to that. Um, so static uh, enlargement could be just from growth of the glandular component, like overactivity of the 5-alpha reductase activity, where the prostate just gets bulky and grows to 80 grams or 100 grams and it's causing passive resistance, where this a tone issue, something dynamic. Um, in the history taking, if a patient says, hey, I have a bashful bladder when I'm at a stadium or people are behind me and I can't relax to void, you know that that's more dynamic. It's not that they're telling you that they have hesitancy and difficulty all the time. It might just be situational. And we would target uh, our treatment perhaps to, to, to inhibit or block that alpha adrenergic stimulation that's going on with stress, stress stressful situations. So history is very important in, in guiding your therapy. Uh, and then, th- so that's exactly what that slide says. Uh, in terms of progression, uh, ma- it's more likely than not to progress. So if you have a 50-year-old who has, you know, a weak stream, hesitancy, nocturia times two, they are likely to progress. In fact, there's a 60% chance that their LUTs will be worse in four years. Um, And then one-third of men who have severe LUTs will end up having surgery within four years. So we know that BPH is likely to progress, but it doesn't progress in all patients. But there are some factors that that have been identified, uh, such as an mTOPs of of BPH progression, like a PSA greater than 1.4, a flow rate, a Qmax less than eight cc's a second, and an age greater than 70. So how do we evaluate these men with LUTs? So you wanna divide it into storage symptoms and voiding symptoms. Uh, and, and storage is irritative, uh, was the former term, but that refers to the, how the bladder stores the urine, so frequency, urgency, urgent incontinence, and nocturia. And the voiding symptoms, the formerly known as obstructive symptoms, are slow streams, splitting and spraying, intermittent streams, so stop and go, uh, straining, and terminal dribbling or post-void dribbling. Um, those maturation symptoms of uh, a sense of incomplete emptying tend to fall into this voiding symptom or when we had the term obstructive symptoms, as I would put those two, uh, those two last uh, symptoms into the obstructive bucket rather than irritative. In terms of what, what can cause LUTs, we've, we're only mentioning the prostate right now prostate enlargement, but we all know that overactive bladder syndrome, neurogenic bladder, foreign bodies, uh, infections like UTIs, prostatitis, stricture disease, bladder tumors, and systemic issues like nocturnal polyuria, which can be related to obstructive sleep apnea, heart failure, peripheral edema, can all contribute to LUTs. And so we cannot just assume that LUTs in men are due to the prostate. So you want to get a good history, medical history. Uh, of of what conditions they have, what medications they're on, um, any procedures that they've had. You wanna get a validated questionnaire to try to objectify the symptoms as much as possible, like the AUI Symptom Index or IPSS, a urinalysis to exclude infection and microhematuria, and a digital rectal exam to see how large the prostate is uh, and whether there's any nodules, tenderness, Um, And then I'll mention the tools for measuring the volume because it's relevant in guideline discussion, but that's not the, that shouldn't be your trigger thing to get a prostate volume, but uh, prostate volume ideally is measured with transrectal ultrasound, although a tau's transabdominal ultrasound with a full bladder Uh, is a a secondary option that might be a little less precise. And then the transurethral appearance of the anatomy in a patient with LUTs is important. So cystoscopy can evaluate whether there's stricture disease, whether you have a high bladder, neck, intravesical, median lobe, and also look at secondary signs of obstruction or prolonged obstruction in a patient. Uh, Like if they have a trabeculated bladder, cellules, diverticuli, even if the symptoms are mild, you might be more concerned that this has been chronic and more severe in nature. So that's how you would assess that. Um, Post-void residual can give you functional measures as can flow. So we talked about an anatomic uh, evaluation with uh, truss, transrectal ultrasound, and cysto, but functional measures can include a, a PVR and a, a uroflow. Um, when diagnostic uncertainty exists, so someone has had a treatment that they didn't respond to or they've had an unexpected response, like say someone feels like they have an enlarged prostate, you put them on prostate medications and they don't respond, it could either be but the problem might not be the prostate, it might be a bladder issue, or this might be, say, an intravesical median lobe causing a static or fixed obstruction that might not change with alpha blocker therapy. In those cases where there's diagnostic uncertainty, then there's a role for urodynamic evaluation. And the terms by the ICS that we're looking for is, does bladder outlet obstruction exist? Is there detrusor overactivity? Is there detrusor underactivity? Uh, it used to be known as impaired detrusor contractility. And is there impaired compliance? So, is the bladder uh, becoming stiffer? Is it, are you having a rise in, in pressure or o- overfilling uh, that might be a result of prolonged obstruction uh, in the patient? Um, you want to evaluate the voiding phase and the filling phase. During the filling phase, you're trying to get an idea of whether the bladder is overactive. You want capacity and you want compliance. As the main factors. If The bladder capacity is diminished, so they have a small functional bladder capacity, you want to know whether compliance limited filling, whether it was sensory urgency, or whether it was an involuntary contraction uh, that limited filling. And that helps you predict um, what, or it helps you make a recommendation for a treatment option, and helps you predict how they might do afterwards. So a patient who has concomitant obstruction with overactive bladder, if you remove the obstruction, we know that about 60% of them will still have symptoms of the overactive bladder one year after treatment. Um, So so it's important to to think of these things. So um, next, we're gonna move on to where these tools that we talked about fit in the evaluation of a patient. So we'll talk about the AUA guidelines, and uh, the European guidelines. So in 2015, there was uh, the basic LUTs management in men uh, guidelines that talked about the recommended tests that we went through, which is a history assessment of LUTs with a validated questionnaire, a physical exam that included a DRE urinalysis in the US. We recommend a PSA in someone who has LUTs and then avoiding diary or frequency volume chart. Uh, Standard treatments include Uh, talking to patients about fluid and diet intake, behavioral modification. A heart-healthy lifestyle in general is a prostate-healthy lifestyle. So like the Mediterranean diet, uh, not overeating, good diet and exercise, whole grains, vegetables is an important part of of their intake. But also uh, drugs fall into this standard treatment category. In patients who have complicated LUTs, they can go into their appropriate evaluation pathway. So abnormal DRE, like a nodule, hematuria, abnormal PSA, pain, an active infection, a palpable bladder, so asymptomatic retention, and neurologic disease. So MS or Parkinson's, uh, when you suspect that that blood is complicated, that's gonna move you in a different pathway, potentially biopsy or potentially urodynamics. In terms of detailed management, after the basic management in these guidelines, um, you still need to evaluate the the frequency volume chart or voiding diary and validated questionnaires. But now this is where the optional tests of a a flow rate and residual urine come in. And I would tell you, if you're even thinking that you're going down a surgical or invasive arm, those are, really should not be optional. And then you discuss the options for a patient. If they have predominant obstruction and a big prostate, you can jump into combination therapy, which we'll talk about, which hits the enlargement aspect, which is a static component and the dynamic component. But if they have a small bladder, I'm sorry, a small prostate, uh, you can try alpha blocker monotherapy or potentially combination with something for their overactive bladder sy- uh, symptoms. Or if they have erectile dysfunction, will you try uh, uh, something like Tadalafil, which we'll get to, which treats the irritative symptoms and can also help with their erectile uh, uh, issues. Um, And then if you offer uh, a procedure, um, you should be pretty sure that, uh, you should be certain that the issue is obstruction. And if you're not certain, you need to do pressure flow studies. Uh, So if they are obstructed, you can proceed with your selective technique. but if they're not, keep looking, find the cause, because, say, chronic prostatitis without obstruction will not respond to transurethral therapy or should not, right? Um, Okay, so in 2018, the AUA guidelines were made a little more specific, and there were some guidelines made, some changes for, surg- for recommendation of surgical management for BPH. So we're not talking about the evaluation of male luts anymore. We're talking about symptomatic BPH and moving into the surgical realm. And there's two big changes that came about since 2015. The first that's, I think, very key is that they recommend assessment of prostate size and shape. All of you who are residents that are doing BPH surgeries, you should know the volume of that patient's prostate. And and um, but you know, some people, a DRE is not enough anymore. They need a, you know, they've had a biopsy before, try to get the transrectal ultrasound volume MRI. But you need to know the size and shape because the guidelines have become um, more specific because our arsenal has increased. We're in like a renaissance of treatment options for the prostate, and and the change here is that if you have a a medically complicated patient or you have a large prostate, lasers are favored, and enucleation procedures, independent of whether you're doing enucleation with bipolar energy, holmium, thulium, green light, is probably the safest way to tackle a big prostate Uh, in a medically complicated patient. So if someone's at a higher risk of bleeding uh, or or, um, just has more comorbidities, um, this would just be a safer approach. So you can't be surprised if you get into bleeding complications. If you go in to do a monopolar terp in a gland you thought was 60 grams, it ends up having been 150 because... Your finger didn't reach. And I mean, I just think it's inexcusable now to not know the size of the prostate before you take them to the OR. That's just basics. Um, And then, so the five main indications for who absolutely needs surgeries, you guys know this, renal insufficiency, refractory retention, recurring infections, recurring gross hematuria from prostate varices or from BPH uh, proper. And then patients who fail medical therapy. uh, And that could either be uh, inefficacy of the medical therapy or intolerance of the medical therapy. Cost I put into the bucket of intolerance, but fortunately the, me- the medicines we use for BPH are mainly generic and very inexpensive. Um, and then uh, obviously if a, if a patient has a diverticulum of the bladder and it's asymptomatic and bladder capacity is normal, that's not something that you need to buckle in there, and that's part of the guidelines. In terms of the NICE, which is the UK guidelines, they're very similar and on point with what we talked about. And the European guidelines are similar. There's a little uh, discussion here about ultrasound, looking at renal function if you have a significant PVR, uh, which is a little bit of d- uh, difference, but that, that should be uh, basic uh, urological uh, management of these patients. So now that we're getting into management options, we're going to talk about behavioral therapy and medical therapy. I'll try to go through this quickly, and this is uh, where we have our poll coming up. So so behavioral changes, what is meant by that, and self-management. I tell my patients that as they age, their bladder thermostat becomes less sensitive. And I say, when you're hearing music or you're listening to somebody, do you ever feel like they're either whispering or screaming? Like they can't can't hear the music and they turn it up until it feels really loud. They lose that mid-range kind of sensation that can happen in the bladder as we age. And so... uh, that could be a contributor to frequency and urgency and urge incontinence in men who have LUTs. So I tell them, uh, so where it says their bladder training, what I tell them is don't wait till you really have to urinate. If a couple of hours have passed, like every even hour, 8, 10, 12, 246, uh, if you haven't urinated, go urinate. Um, empty your bladder. An empty bladder won't leak. Um, and and it just gets them in the the habit. Also, take your time in the bathroom. If if they're not done emptying, they can spend a little more time in there and try to empty the best they can. That'll give them more functional bladder capacity so that um, the amount retained is less. Um, They should know that that, uh, over-the-counter medications may affect this, like alpha agonists, like decongestants uh, that can uh, uh, clamp down on the bladder neck and cause hesitancy. Uh, also, stimulants and diuretics that are found naturally in food, like caffeine, alcohol, spicy foods, uh, may worsen these symptoms. And if they're not going to be near a bathroom, they might want to limit that. For nocturia, this is key. Limit, uh, limit fluid intake two hours before bedtime. Uh, you know, make sure they're not taking their diuretics in the evening. But say it's someone with peripheral edema. If someone has swollen legs and they're already on furosemide and you know that and you ask them hey when are you taking that furosemide they take it in the morning how long does that last last six hours six. last six hours uh in the morning that's when their legs are the least swollen so so the effect of the drug is worn off before they've been sitting all day and their legs have swollen so i often move the diuretic if it's furosemide or any of these loop diuretics to around noon or two o'clock in the afternoon uh, after they've started eating and mobilized and have sat down uh, to try to clear that fluid out of their legs, combining that with uh, leg elevation and or uh, compressive hose. In men who have the phenotype, uh, you know, for, you know, they might be having sleep apnea. We know obstructive sleep apnea causes elevation in uh, in A&P production as, as we sleep and increases fluid production. So if someone's snoring, has daytime fatigue, has hypogonadism, screen them for OSA because nocturnal polyuria could be a contributor. Uh, and all of those are key points. We haven't even gotten to medicines. Uh, active surveillance is someone where maybe they don't have a lot of LUTs, but on exam you feel in a large prostate. Well, counsel them on diet and exercise and what the symptoms are so you can watch them, encourage them to have annual exams and PSA. Uh, in terms of phytotherapy and herbal therapies, these are not in our guidelines, and this is a core uh, core curriculum talk. Uh, but they don't tend to they don't change the PSA. Beta cetosterol is the most active ingredient in, in these. Get the information from the patients when they tell you they're on something. Uh, but we we do not recommend phytotherapy as a primary therapy for these issues. In terms of medical therapies, let's get onto the meat of this. Um, we know that there's two general Uh, categories that we've used a long time and then one novel category which is uh, the PDE5 inhibitors. But alpha blockers relax a smooth muscle as we've spoken about and that's in the bladder neck and prostate. Um, They do not, I tell patients, it's almost like Tylenol for a brain tumor. We're treating the symptoms, we're not treating the bulk. Um, So alpha blockers fall in that category um, uh, and and, and then alpha-1 subtypes Uh, are are what mitigate, I'm sorry, what uh, facilitate the effects and promote the side effects of these drugs in men. So they're not all the same. We know alpha 1a is the one we want to target because that's the one that's highest represented in the smooth muscle of the prostate, bladder, neck, and seminal vesicles. The more we target that, the more we relax the prostate, which means the more we're likely to cause the ejaculatory side effects like an ejaculation. And then alpha 1b is in the blood vessels. Uh, and that can cause orthostatic hypotension. Alpha-1-D is in the nasal passages. uh, uh, Bladder and spinal cord, it can cause uh, nasal congestion or a post-nasal drip. FYI, Tamsulosin, which is Flomax, hits that uh, alpha-1-D a lot, but now we're going to come to our poll question. Um, Which of the following Alpha blockers is the most alpha adrenergic type 1A receptor selective. So you want to consider the impact it has on the ejaculation and the risk of orthostatic hypotension. So I think you have 25 seconds to pick one. I answered it as well to help your numbers. Um, I'm hoping you guys know this. And, and you can see several listed there. Um, uh, those of you who answered silidocin are correct. So Rapaflow is the most selective uh, alpha-1a drug on that list. Um, and you can see here, I'm trying to put the slide in for you guys, that doxazosin and terazosin are listed as the non-selective drugs that have the highest risk of orthostatic hypotension with, with uh, Tamsulosin and being more selective. Um, I will tell you that one out of three men who you give Scylidocin to will have an ejaculation you have to warn them about it. The men who tend to have it are the ones who tend to have severe LUTs. So the men who improve with LUTs the most are the ones who are likely to have uh, the anejaculation ejaculation risk. They should also know that it wears off within 24 hours. So if they're having that symptom, uh, they can either stop it or they can avoid the medicine on the days that they're sexually active. In terms of non-selective drugs, we have to worry about orthostatic hypotension in, in frail patients. Um, and, and so we'll talk about that in a second. So um, flow rate uh, improves within eight hours for the selective uh, alpha-1a blockers, and it's within uh, four hours for silodosin in prospective studies. Uh, but they also have the highest rate of the dry ejaculation. If they develop intraoperative uh, floppy iris syndrome, that's something that you can't assess pre-op, but any patient given this who might need cataract surgery should tell their ophthalmologist that they are on an alpha an alpha blocker because the effect would be permanent. So even if you give a woman uh, who has a ureteral stone, a distal ureteral stone, uh, uh, an alpha blocker like tamsulosin for medical expulsive therapy, which is controversial, but if you, if you do this, uh, which is common, uh, uh, you have to let them know that there's a potential to have intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, which doesn't affect their vision, but can make the cataract surgery more, a little more complicated for the ophthalmologist. So they need to let uh, their ophthalmologist know that if they ever need uh, cataract surgery that they have taken uh, an alpha blocker. In terms of the non-selective ones, Like doxazosin. Say you have a patient who's been on doxazosin for years and they come in and they tell you that they're doing okay and they don't want to change to something else. I do encourage, if if they're not using it for blood pressure, I do move them away from it because as men age, uh, their balance may be different or they might have uh, challenges getting to the bathroom at night. And I'm more worried as they age of the uh, orthostatic hypotension. And in the All Hat study, which was a study looking at anti-hypertensi- antihypertensives and lip- lipid lowering drugs and their effect on uh, preventing uh, MIs, uh, the, there was an arm of doxazosin that was stopped early because of the increased rate of congestive heart failure and stroke in that arm. So so I do not endorse non selective alpha blocker use for male LUTs uh, based on All Hat. I mean, there's no reason why we have good cheap alternatives that work as effectively. Uh, for patients very concerned about ejaculation, then alfuzosin would be a good option that, you know, bridges those two. You can have orthostatic hypotension. Patients should take it after a meal. In terms of 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, they the, the improvement in LUTs are attributed to a decrease in um, in, in prostate volume. Uh, the response is not immediate. We've had finasteride since 1992 and dutasteride since 2001. Uh, benefits may show up by six weeks with a mac- maximum clinical efficacy on LUTs at three to six months with about 10% of patients continuing to improve up to two years post treatment. Um, IPSS reduction is about 15 to 30 percent based on the COMBAT study, which is dutasteride and tamsulosin. decrease in prostate volume about 30 mLs and a a mild increase in flow rate about 2 mLs per second. Um, And then it can reduce refractory hematuria. So patients who have large prostates and have recurring gross hematuria, this should be low on your shelf to grab. And the reason that's relevant is uh, it reduces prostate size by blocking, we talked about blocking uh, conversion of testosterone to DHT. But DHT is a growth factor, which means it's angiogenic. These drugs are anti-angiogenic. They reduce the microvascular density in the prostate. So you can decrease bleeding, you know, prostates that are bleeding, and, and that's useful in, in my, just anecdotally in my, in my practice where I treat a lot of anticoagulated men with BPH surgically. I like them to be on 5-alpha reductase inhibitors uh, at least six weeks pre-op to reduce that microvascular density and, and reduce bleeding in these high-risk patients I'm treating that are actively anticoagulated. Again, that is not part of the guidelines. That was anecdotal. Uh, and then um, the difference between finasteride and dutasteride is... is uh, more on the bench, less so clinically. So finasteride blocks just 5-AR type uh, 2, I'm sorry 5-AR type 2, and dutasteride blocks type 1 and type type 2. If you look at circulating DHT, the reduction in circulating DHT is 95% with dual blockade, which is uh, dutasteride, and 70% with finasteride. The AEs are reduced libido. I tell them 1 in 10. Um, the number here that we're quoting is six, six 6.4. Uh, erectile dysfunction in 8, and that's linked. Obviously, if you're not interested in having sex, it's hard to have an erection. Uh, most will have, uh, that are paying attention, may have uh, effects on ejaculation uh, with combination therapy. And with monotherapy, about 4% will have a noticeable uh, reduction in ejaculate volume. Uh, and... Uh, Based on the PLESS study, uh, patients who have clinical enlargement of their prostate gland on exam, uh, and if it's measured over 40 cc's and a PSA volume of over 1.4, 10 uh, to to respond more uh, to five ARIs like finasteride and dutasteride. And so um, let's let's talk about what it does. By reducing the prostate volume, uh, you can improve the flow, improve symptoms. PSA, as the glandular component of the prostate goes down, should decrease, and it should decrease by 50% or more by nine to 12 months post-treatment. So that could be a question you have on your examination. That's a very important thing. So when people talk about doubling the PSA to to get the range, That is technically correct. If someone has a PSA of 1.5 on finasteride, their estimated PSA off of finasteride is around three. So you use that as as a measure. Another thing to keep in mind is PSA should not go up when a patient is on finasteride or dutasteride. So rising PSA on these drugs should be concerning. Men who come in and say, I don't want to take these drugs, it's going to affect sexual function and lower my testosterone, two things. One is if it affects sexual function, stop the drug or, you know, talk to them unless it doesn't bother them. Uh, uh, But have that conversation with them. It's not, you know, no one's shoving it down their throat. Talk about pros and cons. And then uh, it actually increases testosterone because you're not metabolizing it in the prostate or skin. So circulating levels of testosterone increase 10 to 20%. It's clinically insignificant. It does not improve their libido. Um, so, so, uh, just, just facts. Um, in terms of, uh, Tadalafil, this was one of my resident projects when I was at Cornell, uh, was looking at, at the effects of, uh, PDE5 inhibitors on, on LUTs. And we were able to, to see that it really improves more of the storage LUTs. So what was formerly known as Irritative LUTs, which is Frequency and Urgency. And the magnitude of improvement in LUTs is at least that of an alpha blocker. So if you look at the absolute uh, improvement in in AUA symptom score, IPSS, it's to the same degree that you get with Tamsulosin. But if you look at the domains, they tend to be more of the storage LUTs. So say you have someone who's not on medical therapy, and they come in and they have uh, moderate symptoms, they have an IPSS, a score of 12 and most of the symptoms are frequency, urgency, nocturia, and they might have a little ED, that patient would be a good candidate for something like Tadalafil as first-line monotherapy. If, if they're having hesitancy, difficulty initiating the stream and emptying, then, you know, think Tamsulosin. When you compare them in, in a head-to-head study, the, they both improve symptoms, but the patients who had who were on to had better; uh, they had an improvement in their erectile function. In terms of combination therapy, if you put a man on both uh, a 5-ARI and an alpha blocker, we know that we can change the progression of disease. So there's two big study: MTOPS, M-T-O-P-S, which is the Finasteride Doxazosin study, and then uh, Combat, which is Dutasteride Tamsulosin. And, you, and, and basically, you're reducing men who progress uh, to, to have either a greater than four-point increase in IPSS. Uh, you're decreasing the risk of catheterization for acute, uh, like urinary retention and urinary events and uh, prostate surgeries. Uh, so, so it actually uh, changes a natural history. And Tadalafil combined with finasteride or 5-ARI will improve uh, the symptom scores more than monotherapy with a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So those are things to think about. In terms of OAB, obviously the overactive bladder medications that we use, uh, and that pathway has a separate AUA and SUFU, uh, pathway you can review, uh, but we're not treating the prostate directly, we're treating the male LUTs, and OAB does coexist with symptomatic BPH. And and so so we do know from the time study that an anticholinergic with an alpha blocker uh, will will improve symptoms and quality of life more than alpha blocker alone in in select patients. Uh, But keep that in mind that you're adding a whole new set of potential um, side effects and potential uh, cognitive effects by adding an anticholinergic. Um, And then, uh, in, in studies, when you use those, uh, the, the men that were included had a PBR less than 200 mLs and a flow rate more than five mLs per second. Um, more recently, uh, not, you know, whatever, in the last five to six years, uh, uh, Vignitti had, uh, had a subset of the pivotal study that was done for Mirabegron that looked at men who had 200 men with bladder outlet obstruction who were either given placebo or mirabegron, and there was no uh, difference in the rate of urinary retention of those two arms. So what are the take-home messages before we get to question and answers? Uh, One is that male luts are multifactorial. Prostate's one factor, so you have to know it. Know that factor. Know the size and the shape on exam. uh, Know the PSA, uh, and, and then if you're getting closer to doing an intervention, study this. Get more information. Look at the outside anatomy like I call it with truss and internal anatomy with cystoscopy and then if, if, if that doesn't answer your question or you need more information then you need functional studies like flow and PVR or potentially urodynamics if they have failed other treatments and then you want to pair the treatment option to the patient goal we've talked about uh, how to dissect the symptom and try to predict what medicine works for what BPH phenotype so if someone has more of a dynamic obstructive picture that they only have issues in public bathrooms or in stadiums or movie theaters urinating, but if they're at home, they're urinating fine, alpha blocker therapy is good, you know, just as an example. Um, and and uh, is the patient sexually active or not? Are they trying to conceive or not? Um, what, what is, uh, you know, you have to take this into account. And then big picture, you wanna match high risk patients To low-risk procedures because men who have this problem tend to be older and as we age we have more comorbidities. Um, I will stop right
0: there and welcome any questions. All right. Um, Hi, I'm Kenan Celtic. I'm a third-year resident here at Methodist. Um, All right. So um, kind of starting with, there's a a lot of great questions, but first one, um, does DRE alter the serum PSA if drawn shortly after exam? So um, a
1: normal gentle digital rectal exam should not alter the PSA value to a significant amount. Uh, but if if it is in your means to avoid that as an issue, like like if if you're a urologist, you should structure it so that if you think the patient needs a PSA to have it drawn before you do the prostate exam. So if you do an aggressive, like if you're doing a, a VB3 culture or looking at post-ejaculatory urine specimen uh, and and you've done a vigorous prostate massage, absolutely you're gonna affect the PSA value. So try to to avoid it if you can, but a gentle rectal exam shouldn't make uh, a a big difference. Uh, Ejaculation though, I do counsel my patients that they're coming in for their wellness checks to have avoided ejaculation two days prior. Uh, One day might be enough, but I say two days before. uh, Don't ejaculate. And, and if they've had an elevation I try to say hey when they drew this do you remember you had sex that morning or the night before did you masturbate or ejaculate sometime around that testing so I think it's relevant to ask these questions and just to try to plan around it uh, more data is
0: useful All right next question um, when and I guess who would you get your uh, dynamics in to assess for OAB in the in the context of someone who you also think may be having uh, enlarged prostate Sure. If someone has frequency,
1: urgency, and urgent incontinence, and on exam the prostate seems enlarged, uh, and I treated them, or someone has treated them with 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 an alpha blocker, so you've treated the obstructive ideal, you know, w- with with a medicine, and they don't respond to something that is prostate specific, then I start thinking, okay, this man has overactive bladder, and the next question is, does he have overactive bladder and histologic BPH or BPE, is, is, is a prostate also enlarged? Because I, I tell men, look, you can have a prostate problem, you can have a bladder problem, or you can have both. And, and some men need treatment of both. So for example, I tell them your, pro- your bladder stores the urine and when your bladder has to pee, it has to squeeze and pass the urine past the prostate. Uh, so it's like a pump and a valve. If that valve is too tight and the bladder's having to do more work, it's like lifting weights. If I lift 10 pounds with this arm and 50 pounds with this arm, this arm in theory will bulk up more. If the bladder's doing more work, the bladder wall gets thick, which is gonna make the bladder smaller and less elastic. So, So over time, untreated obstruction results in an overactive bladder because you're causing muscle hypertrophy. When you finally take this man to have surgical therapy at some point and you unobstruct that patient, did you change their bladder? The answer is no. Not immediately. They'll have some improvement in bladder capacity if they're emptying better, but you really have to let time work on that bladder and and decrease uh, the 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 improve the compliance over time. And they may need medical therapy. So uh, it's a good good to say, hey, you might have a bladder problem and a prostate problem. They may be linked. We may have to address both. But setting expectation is going to help improve. A patient satisfaction with your surgical intervention if urgency, frequency, and nocturia
0: persist. All right, next question. Um, are the effects on, uh, with, with regard to 5-ARIs, uh, are the effects on libido um,
1: that are a cause, are they reversible? Okay, so that, that's a very complex uh, question. So short-term, I tell my patients that effects on libido uh, should be reversible. Uh, and, I, and, and we should experience an improvement in symptoms and be able to gauge adverse effects within about three months of them starting the drug. Because uh, you'll see sexual side effects, let's just say one in ten will have sexual side effects uh, on, on initiation of 5-ARI th- therapy. De novo risk goes up about 2% per year. Uh, so, so there's a small increase after that, but most of it is up front. And then, and I say, if you're having those symptoms and you're not improved, uh, then we, could, we can stop it and, and those effects should be reversible. But where people talk about things like post finasteride syndrome for people taking finasteride one milligram or Propecia for hair loss, they've been on it for decades. So if you've been on this medicine for decades, there could be an effect of libido that is permanent, but in, I don't know if it's drug related. Or whether this is something that you know you're 20 or 30 years older and and you have developed hypogonadism, I'm sorry, it could be hypogonadism, but a decreased libido for other reasons, when you stop the drug, those symptoms may persist because you're just that much older. You know, so it's hard to dissect out on people who are on long-term therapy, but you need to have a conversation in every encounter and visit that you have with them because if it's something bothersome, it's absolutely not something that they need to be on. If you're, you know, there, there's so many good options and men should not sacrifice their sexual health if it interests them, for urinating better. I mean, that's the, I've dedicated my half of my life to that. The other half is female, but the male half is improving luts and not messing up sex. So, so that's uh, you know, keep that conversation active with your patients.
0: All right. Um, next question uh, after a TERP, when do you stop five ARIs and uh, alpha blockers? Or post. Perfect. Uh,
1: thank you. So, so TERP, like, so I'm not don't do a lot of terps because I I prefer laser we do aqua actually I do I do terps post-radiation do bipolar terp post-radiation but just everyone else I either do uh, uh, laser vaporization vaporization incision technique I do enucleation we do aquablation resume Uralift, uh I tend and then we're doing so I, I touch on all of our commercially available treatments um, and, and I will tell you that that men who are having TERP-like procedures, so lasers and TERPS, I stop the alpha blocker three to four days after. Um, so I just say stop it three to four days after after surgery. And the five ARI, I say stop it when you have not seen blood for 30 days. So my patient population is one of high pro I'm sorry, of large prostates and high risk patients. So so I say, once you haven't bled for about 30 days, go ahead and stop the five alpha reductase inhibitor. It ends up being about a month after surgery.
0: Right, and we have a kind of a few questions that kind of on the same area. So um, for a patient with their first time having a bladder stone, stone, do you assume that it's BPH and treat the prostate surgically, um, or do you uh, treat the bladder stone and start them on medical therapy for BPH? Okay,
1: so good question. So you definitely assume that they have bladder outlet obstruction. The only way to make a stone, so you don't make it instantly, is, is that you have a nidus that grows over time. So there's some chronicity to their retention of urine. And unless it's a dysfunctional voider and bad habits, most men or women who would have stones would have some kind of outlet obstruction. So absolutely, you have to address that. In terms of the the timing kind of depends on the clinical scenario. Uh, if it's someone healthy and, and prostate is not you know too large, and you know, and they're not at high surgical risk. Absolutely, treat uh, the outlet if appropriate uh, at the time of getting the bladder stones. Um, but you know, it really de- it really depends. Is it someone who's not on medical therapy? Is it? But I would tell you, if they have stones, very likely they're going to end up having a bladder outlet
0: procedure. <clears throat> All right. And kind of similarly, um, in a patient with um, new gross hematuria that's attributed to BPH, do you start them on a five-ARI or do you go directly to surgical treatment? and with that regard there's also another question kind of you know in someone with unresolved microhematuria that's presumed to be related to BPH is that considered an indication for surgical treatment
1: so i always give patients their options before you you, you before taking them for surgery so i do what can in like nine major BPH cases a week 8 to 9 every week uh, so it's not something that i you know you, you need more we need more surgical cases, and you can't uncut somebody. So, so uh, if someone is having either recurrent microhematuria or gross hematuria, if it's recurring gross hematuria, and and they're already on medical therapy, the chances are they're going to need surgical therapy. Microhematuria, I try to encourage them to do a three to six month trial of finasteride if they're tolerating it well. You can monitor. You know, you're you're treating a symptom that's like crying wolf, right? Microhematuria is, 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 is a symptom. It's not an indication by itself for surgery, but if you wanna see whether it's really the prostate, let's use science. Let's use a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor trial, see if it changes, see if it's tolerated, see if, if there's any, uh, if there's more benefit than risk and patients tolerating it, you can try that. If not, you can offer them a surgical therapy. Right.
0: Um, another good question. In a patient with concomitant OAB and BPH with predominantly storage symptoms, would you consider giving them sulfenacin or mirabegron instead of Tiltarity? Simi- and also, do you use um, the voiding to storage subscore ratio, ratio, IP- IPSS to VS? Uh, that,
1: is, that is a fantastic question. I see that coming from Dr. Delgado, who's tuning in from Mexico. Uh, did research with us here uh, in Houston. Fantastic. Uh, uh, you absolutely, it doesn't have to be tolteridine. In fact, mirabegron, which is a beta-3 agonist, is a better choice in men who you suspect may have concomitant BPH because you're not going to affect, it's parasympathetic sparing, so you're not going to affect the contractility of the bladder. So you can improve capacity and storage symptoms without increasing, theoretically, the risk of urinary retention. So first choice is, if cost is, you know, if it's something that's covered by their health insurance or not too costly, would be Meribegron. If not, absolutely, you can use one of the other anticholinergics as long as you're assessing risk appropriately. Excellent question. And then, um, yes, and you can do the voiding to storage subscore ratio, or you can use your clinical gestalt if you do this all the time.
0: <laughs> all right, next question. When, uh, What medications would you consider for patients with persistent dysuria after TURP? on um, provided uh, infection is excluded?
1: That's a great question. And dysuria after transurethral procedures is common, but should be 90% gone within seven to 14 days after surgery. If it's not gone, I, I'm glad you're asking me this. You need to address that early on and it tends to be inflammation. If, if it was a bloody case and you were coagulating a lot and you might have let, left a lot of necrotic escar there or if you're a surgical novice and maybe we're, we're just some people are scared to ramp up the laser or to stay close to the tissue to get efficient vaporization, you leave a lot of dead tissue there. Uh, there could be inflammation that's like a sterile inflammation uh, of, of this tissue that, that either needs to slough off or be absorbed. Uh, and anti-inflammatories work very well for that. What I do is if a patient uh, after seven days is having dysuria, and dysuria to the point, I, I say, are you willing to take uh, a finazopyridine, which is pyridium or azostandard? If, you, if they're taking a medicine for it, that would be abnormal. They're like, I just feel something. I say, well, if you're urinating on a wounded, really, you're just conscious of it, that's something. But if it's it's painful for them to urinate, you need to treat that before they get into this neuroinflammatory loop. And it's harder to treat further on out. So two weeks after, you know, try NSAIDs. If they didn't respond to NSAIDs and the urine culture is negative, uh, the NSAID I tend to do is meloxicam 15 milligrams, PO daily, PRN. If they don't respond to that within, within a week, and their urine is sterile, I will give them a Medrol dose pack, so methylprednisolone dose pack, uh, to bring down the inflammation. That helps most of it. Uh, The other thing is listen to them. Say, does the burning start before you urinate? Because men who have overactive bladder and or overactivity, uh, when the bladder's full, the bladder's trying to squeeze, and as it's trying to squeeze, it's gonna stretch the surgical wound uh, where you operated, and that's gonna result in pain. So if a patient says that it's associated with that, you can try an anticholinergic that is excreted intact in the urine, like solifenacin. So you'll have a systemic effect and a topical effect. Or tropium are drugs that you take orally and show up intact in the urine and may help uh, topically and also by calming down the bladder. So listen to the patient. Um, I have a white paper on this. Uh, I think Boston Scientific has a white paper on, on treating postoperative dysuria that you all can
0: ask for or get. All right. Um, I think we're over time, but um, a lot more great questions. We'll make sure to answer them uh, on the website. But uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.